You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, today we are taking another step in the set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And I typically start, uh, I've started every one of these sermons out with the same uh, opening couple of lines because I want to remind us of what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, This set of sermons is driven by that underlying conviction that we need the whole Bible to make whole Christians. You need both the Old and the New Testament. We need the entire Bible because the entire Bible tells one grand story about one great person. And again, his name is? Yeah, it's telling one grand story about one great person. His name is Jesus. And so what we're doing in this set of sermons is we're looking back at the Old Testament, the the front two-thirds of the Bible, and, and we're asking the question, we're learning together how to see Jesus throughout the whole Bible, in particular in the Old Testament. That that's what we're learning. And today we are in the book of Leviticus. Let's do this. This is where all Bible reading plans go to die, right? Right? This is where it happens. You're doing great in Genesis and Exodus, and then it just all falls apart in Leviticus. And, uh, and, and really today we're in the center point of Leviticus, chapter 16. It is the climatic point in Leviticus. In a lot of ways you could think of it, as the first five books of the Bible are the Pentateuch, and you could think of Leviticus 16 as the center point, and in some ways the climatic point in the first five books of the Bible. I'm commenting on uh, Leviticus chapter 16, as Charles Spurgeon once uh, was about to preach on it, he said this to start out his sermon. He said, if we may ever set any portion of scripture before another, like if we've got to like some more than other, right? If some are going to be prioritized above others, if we may ever set any portion of scripture above another, this is the one, or this is one of the most precious chapters in the whole compass of revelation. And in some respects, the most remarkable of all. It is so full of wonderfully deep teaching that instead of a sermon, it may require a volume. That, that's the chapter that we get to think through uh, together today. Now, let's think about some context. Leviticus doesn't just show up on the scene out of nowhere. It, it comes from somewhere. So by the time you get to Exodus, the second book of the Bible, the people of God are enslaved in Egypt, right? And if you remember that story of Exodus, God raises up a man, his name is Moses, and through Moses, God frees and redeems the people of Israel from their slavery. And then after freeing them from slavery, he leads them into the wilderness, and it's there at the base of Mount Sinai that God gives his people his law, the Ten Commandments. And because it was always God's plan to dwell with his people, God gives 13 chapters. I mean, that's a lot of real estate, right? 13 chapters in the book of Exodus showing and detailing to his people how to build God's home, the tabernacle. 13 chapters of it's this tall and this wide and make this and make that and it needs to look like this and look like that. 13 chapters to to how to build his home, the tabernacle. And as the book of Exodus ends, the tabernacle is built and in this amazing moment, God comes down and dwells, and this is symbolic, right? He's symbolically dwelling within the tent, within the tabernacle. Obviously, you can't put God in a place like a tabernacle. God is as vast as the universe, but his his presence is symbolically dwelling in the tabernacle. Now, this is how the book of Exodus ends. Exodus chapter 40, 
verses 34 through 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That is God coming down into his home. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting. That the glory of God is there, that God is in the tent. But, but Moses cannot enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That, that's how Exodus, the book of Exodus ends. It, it ends with God being present among his people, but, but not really available to his people. It, it, it ends with, with God being next door to his people, uh, but not exactly what you would call a friendly neighbor to his people. That, that, that's how Exodus ends. Now, Leviticus, the next book of the Bible, the third book of the Bible, right after Exodus, is written primarily to address this issue. God is in his temple, but his people can't get in there with him. God's presence is there, but, but God's people can't get to the presence of God. That The whole book of Exodus is, is addressing this issue. How will unholy people visit the home of their holy God? How's that going to happen? What is the way for that to go down? How will, how will unholy people visit the home of their holy God? That is the point of the book of Exodus. Now, from Exodus or from Leviticus chapter 16, here's what I want to do. I just want to make two broad points today and then we'll apply it. Two broad points from the, from the book of Leviticus, in particular chapter 16. Here's two things we learn from this chapter. Number one, our sin is worse than we think. That's point one. Our sin is worse than we think. This is one of the things that Leviticus shows us. Now, before we get into Leviticus chapter 16, let me take one step back and, um, and give us the context we need to see Leviticus through. Because again, Leviticus doesn't just show up. It shows up as the third book of the Bible. So you've got Genesis and you've got Exodus and then you've got Leviticus. So if you go back to the first chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, here is what we have happening in Genesis 1 and 2. God gives our first parents... Adam and Eve, a pristine garden. And then he gives our first parents an all access pass to the garden to just explore the wonders of his creation, right? Just, just go and, and have a blast exploring everything that I've made for you. But God gives one prohibition to our first parents. The prohibition comes in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. He tells them, you may surely eat of any tree of the garden. That's their all access pass. Go enjoy my creation. But here's the prohibition of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's pretty serious, isn't it? Not I'm going to slap your wrist. No, in the day that you break my command, in the day that you sin, in the day that you eat that forbidden fruit, you will surely die. Or as Paul puts it in Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Now, isn't that amazing? Two pages into the Bible, God is alerting us to the seriousness of sin. You eat it, you will surely die. And in the most catastrophic day in the history of the world, our first parents in Genesis chapter 3 ate the forbidden fruit. And in doing so, they brought sin into the world and they passed down a sin nature to all their sons and daughters all the way down to you and me. Now in Genesis chapter 3, we learn two things about sin, two things about it. Number one, in Genesis 3, we learn that sin separates 
Do you remember how Genesis chapter 3 ends? It ends with God's people being banished from God's presence. That is a sad ending to Genesis 3, isn't it? God's people banished, uh, banished from God's presence. Genesis chapter 3 ends with this verse in verse 24. He drove out, God drove out the man. Adam and Eve are now out of the garden. God drove them out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, the, the angel, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That, that's the sad ending to Genesis chapter 3. Now, now, why did that happen? What, why did God drive them out of his presence, out of the place of the Garden of Eden? Why, why did that happen? Well, it's because of two massive realities. Number one, it's because of our sin. And number two, God's righteousness. So, so we sinned, our first parents sinned against God. And, and by nature now, we all have to, by nature and choice, we've sinned against God. And because God is perfectly just, because God is, because God is good, he can't just let sin go unpunished. Rather, because God is just, he has to, to judge sin. He has to remove sin from his presence. And that's what you see happening in verse 24. Because of their sin, God drives our first parents away, away from his presence. And he guards the way back with an angel. And not just an angel, an angel with a flaming sword, right? I mean, that, that is alerting us up front in the Bible. Yes, yeah, yeah, sin separates us from God and the way back to God is going to be treacherous. It is going to be a hard road back to God, a costly road back to God. Getting back to God is going to be a problem. So that's the first thing we learn in Genesis 3, that sin separates. Here's the second thing we learn in Genesis chapter 3, that our sin requires substitution. Sin requires substitution. It's an amazing thing that our first parents sin against God. And God said, when you sin, you will surely die. But it's amazing in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve don't immediately die. They, they do die down the road, but they don't immediately die. How is that? How did they survive sinning when God said, when you sin, you'll surely die? Well, verse 21 of Genesis 3 shows us the answer. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God, here's how they didn't die. God sacrificed an animal. And from the skin of that animal, he created clothing. To, to be draped over Adam and Eve to cover their sin, to cover their guilt, and to cover their shame. Three chapters in the Bible, we see that sin requires substitution. If Adam and Eve are going to live, if they're going to breathe another day post-Genesis chapter 3, then someone or something else has to die. Now, Leviticus comes three, three books into that story. That, that, that story. <clears throat> and Leviticus is all about these themes that show up really early on in the biblical narrative, like in Genesis chapter 3. That the whole book of Leviticus is about setting up this sacrificial system. Like you just heard that, that chapter read. It is a bloody book, isn't it? I mean, there's bulls and goats dying in droves. I mean, it's, it is a bloody book of the Bible. It's almost as if we are transported into a different world right? This is, this is Leviticus. And Leviticus is making a, a deathly serious point. Because of your sin, it's either going to be the blood of bulls and goats, or it will be your own blood. That's how serious our sin is to God. It's either your life or this animal's life. This is what the book of Leviticus is trying to help us see. And then you get to verse, or chapter 16 of Leviticus, and now we're to the day of atonement. 
It's the center point, the climatic point of the sacrificial system, the Day of Atonement. It was the climax of the sacrificial system. It was the most solemn day on the Jewish calendar. And it was a day where the seriousness of sin was terrifyingly clear to the people of God. That's what it's doing for the people of God. It's, It's helping the people of God see that is how serious our sin is to God. This is, this is the point of it. Now, to, to understand the Day of Atonement, we have to first start with the tabernacle. I'm going to put a picture up on the screen for you of the tabernacle. It's going to start with the kind of the zoomed out version of it. You're kind of getting to see that the whole thing here. That's the whole sort of system. You've got the altar where things are going, going to be burned and, and, and sacrificed. You've got these slaying tables uh, where animals are going to be killed. But I want to focus in on the actual tabernacle itself. And and look at that tabernacle. It consists of two rooms. The outer room is called the holy place, the holy place. And then you have an inner room called the holy of holies. And the the holy of holies was set apart and closed off from that outer room, the holy place, by a four-inch thick curtain. Now, now what's the purpose of that curtain? It was to separate God's sinful people from God's holy presence. That's why that curtain is there. It's God saying, hey, caution, this wall is there because if you come through that wall, I'm going to kill you. That's what that curtain is there for. It's to keep God's unholy people away from God's holy presence. But in the holy of holies, in that inner room, was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, where God's presence symbolically would dwell. And on top of the mercy seat stood the two cherubim, those two angels. And just like those angels in Genesis chapter 3 with that flaming sword, these two cherubim, these two angels are protecting the presence of God from God's unholy people. So, so this is coming into the tabernacle. This was coming into the tabernacle was a, it was a life and death experience. It was, a, it was a, terrifying, a terrifying experience, right? It's, twice in Leviticus chapter 16, God says, hey, this is the way you come into my presence. D- don't do it a different way because if you do it a different way, you're going to die. Twice he says that. And God is not joking in, in Leviticus 16. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 10, Aaron's sons came to God in their way, not God's way, and God killed them both. So, so God is not joking in Leviticus 16 when he says, you do it a different way and you're going to die. But no, you do it this way, lest you die. You do it my way, l- lest you die. Twice he says that. Now, what is this whole temple system saying to the people of God? It is a visible, symbolic, pictured reminder that your sin separates, that you cannot just come to God. There is a very specific way, a prescribed way of coming to God. What does that curtain show us? It's it's that symbolic picture of God's presence being separated from his unholy people. That the whole temple system is showing us that, that sin separates. Now in the holy place, that outer room of the tabernacle, it was busy. There would be priests coming in and out several times a day, do, doing work in there, do, doing things that God had prescribed to do. But in the Holy of Holies, behind that four-inch curtain, all the way in that inner room where God's presence dwelt, in the Holy of Holies, it could be entered by one person, only one person, and only one time a year, one person, one time a year on the Day of Atonement. 
On that day, the high priest, he would go through this extensive purification, offering sacrifices for himself, for his own sin. Then the high priest on the day of atonement would take two goats, and you see this in verses 7 and 8 of of Leviticus 16. He would take these two goats and he would present them before kind of the, the, the door or the screen into the tabernacle. And here's what would happen to these two goats. Goat number one, verses 15 and 16. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the, with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. That's where God's presence was. Uh, thus, he shall make atonement for. He shall make atonement. Atonement means to cover. He shall make atonement for. He shall cover for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and because of all of their sins. So, so goat one was this symbolic imagery. It was, it was God showing and reminding Israel just how serious their sin was to him. It was so serious that it required, their sin required substitution for, for them to live, for their sin to be atoned for, for their sin to be covered. Someone or something else had to die. Substitution was God's only solution for the sin that separated us from him. Then there was goat two. And rather than killing goat two, the sin of the people was confessed over this goat. You see this in verses 20 through 22. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting of the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat. I just picture that scene. And confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sins. Can you just imagine that scene? Here is is goat number two. This is gonna be the living goat. And this goat isn't killed, he's confessed over. Aaron lays his hands on the head of this goat and he just begins confessing his own sin, your sin, your spouse's sin, your children's sins, all the things you've done, all the things you've left undone. And sin isn't just an issue of action, it's also an issue of affection, right? So so Aaron's got a lot to work with here. I mean, he's gonna be here for a while just confessing over this goat all the sins of, of Israel. It's this picture of their sin being transferred to another of their guilt and their shame, of their sin being removed, placed on this goat, this goat that the the King James Version calls the scapegoat. All all of their sin being placed onto this, uh, this goat. And then at the end of verse 21, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and then send this goat, this scapegoat, away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities. He shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote place and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That's an unbelievable picture. It's a picture of Psalm 103 verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's the picture of this goat. It's the picture of God taking our sin, our guilt, our shame, and removing it from us, banishing it from us, taking it away where it's to be remembered by God no more. Is that not amazing? It's an amazing picture. So so think about goat one. It's the symbolic picture. 
That the payment God demands for sin is satisfied. That's goat one that is slayed at the tent of meeting. And then there's goat two, it's the symbolic picture. The second symbolic picture, it's the guilt and, and shame of our sin being removed, banished from our presence. God remembers it no more. Now just think about that for a moment. Part of what Leviticus chapter 16 is trying to show us is how serious sin is. So just ask yourself that question. Do you see sin as that serious? Does sin feel that serious to you? It's, it's either your life or, or someone or something else's life. That's the only way we're breathing. Does it, does it feel that serious to you? And listen, the bigger question is not even does sin feel serious to you? The big question is how serious is sin to God? And what Leviticus 16 is showing us is it is deathly serious to God. It's either their life or this goat's life. For them to live, someone or something else has to die. Sin is deathly serious to God. Point one, Leviticus 16 shows us that our sin is worse than we think. Point two, Leviticus 16 shows us that God's grace is also better than we think. It's not just the sin is better than we think, it's that God's grace is, is better than we think. Here is the, the major problem, the primary problem with Leviticus 16. There is a problem with it, and here's the problem. Leviticus 16 is all a picture, it's, and it's just a picture. This is the problem with Leviticus 16. It's, it's just a picture. This is why the author of Hebrews, and by the way, Hebrews is the New Testament commentary on Leviticus. And this is why though, because Leviticus is all a picture. It's why the author of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse four says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They can't do that. The blood of bulls and goats are really just symbolic. They're all a picture. So let's think this through for a minute. If the blood and bulls of goats are really just a picture, how in the world were God's people in the Old Testament reconciled to God? How did that happen? How did God not just kill them on the spot? If the wages of sin is really death, if you eat the forbidden fruit, you're gonna die. How did they live in the Old Testament? How were they reconciled to God, made right with God? How was their sin dealt with and forgiven? Well, here's one way to think about it. Um, think about the Old Testament sacrifices, like our, our two goats in Leviticus 16. Uh, think about those like you would think about a credit card. Like you'd think about a credit card. Every time you see an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter three, Leviticus 16, every time you're seeing an, an animal sacrifice in the Old Testament, it is like paying for something with a credit card. Now think about how you pay with something with a credit card. Imagine you're out shopping and it's Black Friday. You're one of those people, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's Black Friday and you're one of those people out at 2 a.m. saving all sorts of money while you spend. And, uh, and all of a sudden, you see the TV that was made for you. And because TVs are ridiculous now, it was like 300 inches wide. It was amazing. And you see the TV that was made from you, and, and you grab the TV, you take it to the front of the store where you're going to pay, and what you do when you get to the front of the store is you swipe a card. And it's amazing. After you swipe the card, you actually get to take the TV home. 
I mean, it's an amazing concept. You, you swipe the card and you take it home. But here, here's what's so amazing about it. You, ta- you, you haven't even paid for it yet. I, when you pay with a credit card, you know you haven't actually paid, right? I mean, we, do, do we need to clarify that? You haven't actually paid for it. You, you've swiped the card. You haven't paid, but you take the TV home. It's an amazing deal. But, but just to prove that you haven't paid for it, there is a bill that shows up a few weeks later that you have to pay, right? You see the imagery there? You, you see what's happening with the credit card. So when you swipe the card, it is a, you, you're not actually paying. It, when you swipe the card, it is a picture. It's a promise of payment. But, but here's what's amazing. Th- think back to your Black Friday moment. You swipe the card, it's just a picture of payment. You haven't actually paid for anything yet. It's just a picture. You swipe the card and do you know what you get to do with the TV? You get to take it home and you get to enjoy all the benefits of the TV. You haven't paid for it yet, all you've done is swipe. All you've done is give the the picture of of payment, the promise of payment. And you get to, to enjoy all the benefits of the TV and you'll actually pay for it later. So now think now about Old Testament animal sacrifices. Every time an animal was killed in the Old Testament, it was like swiping a credit card that was all accruing to God's account. Every animal killed. And there's a lot of animals killed in the Old Testament, right? And every time you you see that animal killed, it's another swipe of the card. It's just a picture of payment. It's not real payment. It's a picture of payment. And just like our Black Friday shopper, who who's, takes his unpaid for TV home and enjoys it, right? When the people of Israel swiped the card of sacrifice, they got to take home and, and enjoy the, the benefits of the sacrifice. They got to take the picture of payment. They got, they got to enjoy the forgiveness of their sin, the removal of their guilt and shame. The, the cleansing of sin. They, they got to enjoy the, the presence of God dwelling in the midst of God's people. Do you see the picture? Every swipe of the credit card, the picture of payment, that they were now just like the Black Friday shopper enjoys the TV presently without actually paying for it. The people of God were, were enjoying all of those benefits immediately. But the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament the whole sacrificial system depended on God paying the bill later. The whole sacrificial system depended on that. So here's the way Paul says it in Romans chapter three, verses 23 through 26. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's our problem, right? That's the human problem. And Paul goes on in Romans six to say the wages of sin is death. Sin separates, sin is serious to God. When you sin, you will surely die. Verse 24. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. We're made right by by his grace as a gift. Now, how are we made right? It's through grace, but but how does it happen? Through what? Through the blood of bulls and goats? No, Paul says, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's an amazing, it's an amazing paragraph in Romans chapter three. 
In other words, Paul is saying all of those Old Testament sacrifices, that they weren't paying for anything. They were just charging the card. That's all they were doing. It was just a picture of payment. And because, God's, because God is slow to anger and he's abounding in steadfast love, because that, that is our God, God's credit line is really, really high, R- really high. And so year after year, charge after charge, sacrifice after sacrifice, the people of God were getting the benefits of the picture of payment, forgiveness of sin, cleansing the presence of God without the actual payment. But now think about this. If all you did was charge the card, but never pay the bill, you'd be committing fraud, right? Yeah, you'd be arrested and eventually thrown in jail for that, right? Yeah, you, you would be a fraud. And, and, and what Paul is saying in Romans chapter three is, God is no fraud. He's not a fraud. He is the, the keeper of his promises. And at just the right time, God put forward Jesus, his beloved son. And it says, as a propitiation, as a payment, as the substitute, as the one who would make right on the bill. He put forward Jesus as the propitiation by his blood. Translate, here's what Paul's saying. Every swipe of the sacrificial system was paid in full by the death of Jesus. That's Paul's point. Every swipe of sacrifice is is made right by the death of Jesus. And I love Paul's language in verse 26. It says that that God is just. And and as a just God, he demands payment for sin. But then he says, but he's also the justifier. And as the justifier, he is the one who pays for our sin himself. He's just and the justifier. This is why John the Baptist, when he looks over and sees Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. He's just like that goat, but he's the actual payment. He says, but behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What what all of those bulls and what all of those goats pictured, Jesus actually accomplished. What, What was promised in the Old Testament, Jesus actually paid with his life and death. Think about that first goat. That first goat. He, he was slayed for our sin, for the sin of the people of, of Israel. It's the picture of payment. His life for, for their life. And, and, and this is what that goat pictured or promised. What, what it pictured, what it promised, Jesus actually paid. Think about that second goat. That, that second goat received the sin and the guilt and the shame of our sin. And then he removed it as he was sent outside the camp to die alone. And what's pictured and promised by that second goat, Jesus actually paid. Hebrews 13 tells us that Jesus suffered outside the gate. He was sent outside the camp to sanctify the people through his own blood. He is the one who removes our sin for us. And you remember outside the camp as Jesus is there dying on the cross, do you remember those, that, that, that last precious word that Jesus uttered? To tell us die. It is finished. The entire bill for your sin has been paid in full. That's amazing, isn't it? The, the entire bill of your sin paid in full. Now, let me just apply this in three ways, really briefly. Three ways. I'm going to have to be really fast here. 
uh, application number one. Jesus's payment changes the way we deal with guilt. It changes the way we deal with guilt. I, I was coming back from a lunch here recently and uh, Jimmy asked me the question, um, when you wake up in the morning, what is the most persistent emotion that you feel first? Not, not what thought do you think first. What is the most persistent emotion that you feel first when you wake up? And I don't know what that is for you. As I thought about that, here, here was my answer. When I wake up in the morning, the most consistent thing that I feel first is low-grade despair. Low-grade despair. It's not like super high, but, but there is a low-grade despair that meets me almost every morning. And, and one reason for that is because virtually every morning when I wake up, I feel some level of guilt. I, I, I don't know about you, I don't wake up feeling forgiven. I just don't, I, I don't wake up feeling that way. And on top of that, I, I don't wake up feeling that way. There's also an accuser, this voice of the enemy, that, that his daily work is taking that long list of our sins and keeping that list right before us. This is what Satan, this is called the accuser. This is what he's doing day in, day out, taking that list, the things that we've done, the things we've left undone. And he's, he, he's just whispering and sometimes even shouting that list of all the ways that we have sinned against God. This is why most of us, if you would just stop and let your heart kind of slow down, most of us live with at least a low-grade sort of underlying feeling of guilt and shame in our life. But, but Paul tells us what has happened to that list of sins that, that we have done, that, that list of sins that Satan so often is reminding us of. In, in Colossians chapter two, Paul says this about it. And you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven. This is what has happened to the list. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Here's what's happened to the list. Jesus, our perfect sacrifice, died in our place for every last sin that we've committed in our past, currently are committing right now in our present and will in the future commit. He died in our place, paying the price for every last one of those sins. The debt has been paid in full. And Paul is saying, if you need a receipt, just look to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is what Paul is reminding us of. We have got to learn to deal with our guilt the right way, not by looking inward at how good we are. Satan will always find a hole in your righteousness. But listen to how Martin Luther did this. He was uh, the reformer, kind of ushered in the Protestant Reformation, and, and he had a tender conscience. And, and throughout the whole sort of like Protestant Reformation, all the good things he was doing, he would be in these deep battles with Satan over his, the guilt of his sin. He would feel so deeply the guilt of his sin. And he tells this one story about waking up in the middle of the night, actually he framed it as a dream that he was having, where Satan had drug him into the courtroom and there he begins reading this list of all of Martin Luther's wrongs. 
all of his sins, accusation after accusation. You're, you're corrupt, you're consumed with lust. You're, you, all you do is crave power. I mean, just look at yourself, Martin Luther. You're, you're hopeless, you're worthless, you're godless, you're, you're spiritless, you're, you're prayerless. And in response, Luther, he says back, are, are you done? And Satan's like, no, no, I'm not done. You're greedy, you're prone to anger, you're self-righteous, you're prideful, you're arrogant. He just goes on accusation after accusation. And finally, when he finishes, Martin Luther responded back by saying, I don't deny a single charge. Guilty. I'm guilty of everything that you've said. See, he's not looking in at himself at how good he is. That's not his strategy. He says, I, I, I'm guilty as charged, but you left one thing off. You've forgotten one thing that's on the list, and it's these precious words, the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is how we deal with guilt. It's not by looking at our own righteousness. It's by looking upward to Jesus and his righteousness given to us. That that's how we deal with guilt. Jesus' payment changes the way we deal with guilt. Second application point. Jesus' payment changes the way we come to God because it has dealt with our guilt. Jesus' payment now changes the way we come to God. In Hebrews chapter 10, again, an application, it's the commentary on Leviticus. The author of Hebrews says this, commenting on all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament, how the blood of Jesus fulfills it. He says, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, let us draw near with confidence. Let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith. He says, now we can come to God like that with full assurance of faith. When I was in high school, I uh, broke a lot of God's laws. Um, I generally tried to keep the ones, though, that would keep me out of jail. That was my general strategy. Uh, but there was one moment when I didn't do that. Uh, th it was the, the, the night before we were playing our crosstown rival in football. And kind of on a spur of the moment, last second whim, I uh, got a group of guys together and we went over to their football stadium where we were going to play the game the next night. And we... Uh, we vandalized it. That, that's what we did. We vandalized it. And uh, I remember waking up the next day. It's Friday now. That was Thursday night. It's Friday. And I just remember waking up with the, with the, the, the overt feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm about to get caught. That's what's about to happen. I, I, I drove to school. Um, the first thing I noticed when I drive into the parking lot is there's a police car there. As soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, I, I, it's over. I'm about to literally be thrown in jail. The, the game's up. Uh, I, I walk into my first hour class and uh, I'm in my first hour class and that's when I hear the voice of my football coach come over the intercom and say, uh, Rodney Hobbs, will you please report to my office right now? I'm like, my life's over. All right, here we go. And I walk into his office. He looks at me. I look at him and he says, Hey, I was thinking about this play. I want to throw it into the offense tonight. You good with that? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good with that. What, what is it? I've never felt fear like that in the presence of a police officer, in the presence of a football coach. I'd never felt it until that moment. And this is, this is what guilt does to our relationship with God. We begin to live in this perpetual state of fear. 
of just waiting for the other shoe to drop, of just waiting for for God to to come down and zap us and get us, waiting to be found out by God. Can, Can we just revel in the good news of Jesus this morning? You have already been found out. Hey, here's the deal. You are so bad. Just just receive this from the Lord this morning. You are so bad that Jesus actually had to die for you. Could he get any worse than that? You're so bad that he actually had to die for you. But here's the amazing grace of God. You are so loved by Jesus that he was glad to do it. Can we just revel in that this morning? Our worst has already been found out. And God has paid for it all, and he's welcomed us into his presence. God knows the worst about you, and what God has done for your worst is to bring his best to pay for it. So now we can draw near to God with confidence, with a a full heart. Do you know what people who actually feel forgiven do? Here's what they actually do. They actually enjoy God. Do you know what none of us are doing too much of in this room? Enjoying God. There's no one in this room that this morning you came in and your problem is, I'm just enjoying God too much. None of us are. And do you know what opens up the door for us to enjoy God, to explore God's vast heart? is knowing that we have been forgiven by him, that we're so loved that he would bring his best to cover our worst. And lastly, we'll just end here. Jesus's payment must be received. Jesus's payment must be received. It cannot be achieved. It has to be received. This is, for me, this is the most amazing part of Leviticus chapter 16. The most amazing part of it is, do you know what the people of God did to receive forgiveness and cleansing? Do you know what they did? This is the most amazing part of Leviticus. Here's what they did. Nothing. They didn't do a thing. Not not a single thing. You see this in, in verses 30 and 31. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all of your sin. They're going to be cleansed by God, forgiven by God, rescued, made right with God. And here is their job on that day. This day, the day of atonement, is a day, a Sabbath day, a day of solemn rest for you. Isn't that amazing? That they get all of this from God, and do you know what they did? Nothing. Nothing. It's a picture of how we receive the the, the work of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Here's what we do to receive the work of Jesus for our sin, to appropriate the grace of God so that we are now cleansed from our sin, forgiven by God, rescued, redeemed, made right from God. Here's what we do, church. Nothing, nothing. We have a Sabbath day, we, we rest, and as we rest, we receive from God. We receive the, the work of God that is dealt with our sin by sending his beloved son, Jesus, to die and on the third day come back to life for it. That, that's how we do it. We come to God with the empty hands of faith, but not bringing anything. All we do is bring our nothing. We bring our rest and we receive from God. We receive from God. So, so here's how, I just want to end with this question. Have you received Jesus' payment? Have you received it? It's the most important question of your life. Have you received Jesus' payment? 
Will you bow with me there where you are? Have you received Jesus' payment? We oftentimes sum up the good news of Jesus like this. We're all idiots. We have an incredibly bright future in Jesus. And then part three, anyone can get in on this. Do you know how you get in on God rescuing, redeeming, cleansing, forgiving, dealing with our sin so that we can actually be reunited to God? The way we do that is by doing nothing. We we stop trying to achieve and we receive. We come to God with the empty hands of faith. We turn from our sin and we hurl our life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We come to God with the empty hands of faith, offering our life and just saying, God, God, I am trusting in nothing and no one but Jesus who stood in my place for my sin. Everything my sin deserved, Jesus got. I am trusting in that Jesus, his work for my sin. And for all those who do that, God opens wide his arms and welcomes into his family. Have you received Jesus's payment? Has that happened? Has that happened? And maybe right now, the Lord is working in you, calling you, wooing you, pursuing you. And if that's you right now, you can just say to God, God, here is my life. I'm trusting Jesus. Rescue me. Make me right with you, oh God. And if that's you this morning for the first time, you're making that decisive move toward Jesus. Why don't you just raise your hand, just with every head bowed, just raise your hand there where you are and make eye contact with me if that's you. Anyone this morning that that this is your decisive move toward God where you are trusting in the finished work of Jesus to make you right with God. Yep, I see you there. Thank you. Yep, I see you. Yeah. Others this morning? Just there where you are, you can raise your hand and make eye contact with me. Others this morning? Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. So if you raised your hand this morning, the most important thing you can do when we finish the service, we're gonna have some of our elders and pastors and prayer team right up here up front. Make sure you come down. We would love to pray with you this morning and to start that journey with Jesus with you. So Father, would you freshly amaze us with the work of Jesus for us as pictured in Leviticus 16? Oh God, would you convince us that we don't have to walk out of this room feeling guilt over any of our sin? We can, but we don't have to. And God, will you, will you teach us how to, how to deal with our guilt in a, in, a, in a gospel way, but by not looking inward at us, but upward at Christ? God, would you free us to enjoy you in new and fresh and amazing ways today? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.